0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to season two of the Legends of Retail podcast brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, management, and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, co-founder and president of Convictional. What is Convictional? In short, Retailers use Convictional to connect to vendors for dropship and curated marketplace. My guest today is a finance legend in the world of SaaS and retail, Brian Wolf. Brian Wolf is the CFO of All Voices, an employee feedback management platform, and he was the former CFO of Bonobos, Dog Vacay, and Thrive Market. I brought Brian on the show to provide guidance and perspective to retail CFOs who are navigating the current market environment with inflation, excess inventory, supply chain issues, Brian really delivered. We talked about the responsibilities of a CFO in retail versus SaaS. We talked about their respective financial models, the financial tools retailers need to use in order to navigate financial downturns and how inventory turns can change depending on the business. Brian shared the inside story of how Bonobos launched its guide shops. Towards the end of the episode, Brian also shares the perfect strategy to reduce your customer acquisition costs as a retailer. So make sure you stick around for that. Here's my conversation with Brian Wolf, CFO of All Voices and former CFO of Bonobos and Thrive Market. Brian, welcome to Legends of Retail. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Chris. It is great to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, we were introduced by our mutual friends at Zig Capital. Shout out to Dave and Ryan over at Zig. Very grateful for the introduction. And we've been really interested in having the CFO perspective on the Legends of Retail podcast. Um, This is because many retailers are uh, struggling right now. Uh, with excess inventory, with finding ways to reallocate resources, to make uh, cash commitments. And I think that you're the perfect person to have on the podcast to talk about this topic. Um, And that's because you have been the CFO of a D2C brand, Bonobos, of a retailer, Thrive Market, a Marketplace, Dog Vacay, uh, and SaaS companies. So I think that you have such a well-rounded perspective that I'm just looking forward to digging into all things finance with you today.
1: Awesome. Uh, I'm excited to dig in as well. Let's do it.
0: Cool. Well, let's let's maybe uh, compare, um, you know, how you operate as a CFO between uh, maybe a SaaS startup and retailer, a, a retailer. So starting with, you know, your top mandates and priorities, As a CFO of a high-growth startup, and very curious about that and how it changes as you scale the startup.
1: Sure, Uh, yeah. So, you know, as as a CFO um, of a startup or really of of any company, um, I think of the role as a strategic um, allocator and um, former of capital. So, you know, you are in charge of capital formation and capital allocation um, at a strategic vantage point to make sure that that capital is being deployed wisely in productivity and is creating economic value for the company. That's like sort of the broad overall thesis. Uh, That's a little bit, you know, a little bit pedantic, but like that's actually my North Star, right? And and I think the North Star of any really good, uh, truly valuable CFO, um, how that actually, uh, you know, Uh, um, plays out for a startup, a series A or series B, C or D company, uh, you know, in a different industry, retail versus SaaS versus marketplace versus consumer internet um, differs, right? But, you know, really the focus has to be on, you know, on value creation um, and on, Uh, you know, the capital formation and getting the right capital and the right capital partners to help support that value creation. So what does that actually mean from like a a more tangible standpoint? Um, From like, you know, to to answer a specific question for a, you know, growth company, Series A company, you know, call it a a venture-backed company, um, the top mandate is usually to get to the next phase of a company's evolution, right? So if you're a Series C, you need to raise your Series A. If you're a Series A, you need to raise your Series B, your Series B, et cetera, et cetera. Um, At the same time, knowing when it's potentially time to exit, right? Uh, because if you see your business, uh, you know, slowing down in six months, it's too late <laughs> to exit effectively, right? You need to be exiting while um, you still have, you know, good future business performance for the next, you know, call it three to nine months, but waters beyond that are choppier, right? Like that's the perfect time to exit, but assuming you're not ready to exit and most startups aren't because you have a, a, a big vision that you're going after, um, it's how do you get to the next round, right? How do you, what metrics do you need? Um, uh, what story do you need behind those metrics? What team do you need to have in place to be able to have a, a, a successful fundraise? And, and that varies, right? That varies based upon um, you know, the, the, the industry that you're in. It varies based upon uh, you know, what point you're going to like from A to B, B to C. And it varies based on market conditions, as a lot of people have learned you know, a pretty difficult way over the last sort of six to nine months. Um, and you know, a good CFO understands that. Right. And and can help see around corners in a way that helps prepare the company so that when it's time to, uh, you know, to raise capital or when it's time to exit, when it's time to get to that next level, um, you know, you're ready. And the next level could also be, by the way, of, you know, self-sufficiency, right, where, where um, you know, company is, is uh, you know, break even or cash flow positive and doesn't isn't reliant on, on, you know, outside capital for for continued growth. Um, so that's, and we could, you know, spend a whole podcast on like capital formation and strategies around fundraising. Um, and I don't think we want to go too deep down that rabbit hole. Cause you know, that is again, a whole podcast. And if you want to have me back, I'm happy to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how I think about capital formation with respect to capital allocation in terms of, you know, how to use those funds, you know, CFO, uh, the way I sort of think about my job is like one, you know, don't run out of cash, right? Like managing day-to-day liquidity and for retail companies, uh, you know that in particular is a challenge uh, versus some other companies that have you know more predictable cash flows. Um, and then two, having a sound financial plan that has uh, multiple scenarios, right? So you um, you know are again seeing around corners, um, planning for uh, you know exogenous shocks, thinking about what happens if you know things uh, go wrong. Also, what happens if things go right? Um, and being able to really plan for those and. Um, you know, rapidly adjust the means by which you're deploying capital within the company. That is a really sound, uh, you know, sound financial plan. And then lastly, um, you know, orienting the company and the company leaders to achieve that outcome. Right. Uh, You know, a lot of uh, my first job as CFO was over a decade ago, but I came from like a, you know, an investment background. Um, And I was very good at building a model, but I wasn't very good at actually getting the team to, to implement and execute to hit that model. Um, so you have to be able to do that, right? You have to be able to, to lead the broader leadership team so that if everyone hits the goals and objectives ahead of them, you achieve the outcome that you're looking to versus just building a beautiful model that has like a nice outcome.
0: It sounds like, you know, you've got to either optimize for the next funding milestone you have to, or you, you optimize for an exit. If maybe things aren't going to plan or you're trying to be opportunistic uh, or lastly, profitability right? Those are sort of maybe the three, uh, optimization decisions one can make as CFO of a high growth startup. Um, I'm actually very curious about the exit option because I was expecting number one and number three, right? So, uh, next milestone profitability. When is it time to exit? What are some signals positive and negative that come to mind?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Um, part of it has to do with the founder, the CEO and the team, right? So, um, you know, what most CEOs don't realize of, uh, of um, you know, growth companies, of venture-backed companies, is that when they sell a company, they're not out, <laughs> right? They need to be in for the next, you know, three to five years because someone is going to buy you um, to, based upon your potential. If you want to get the sort of multiple valuation that, uh, you know, that's going to lead to an outcome that your investors and really you and your team are happy with, you are in the company building phase post acquisition, right? Um, so the question is, what, what time to exit? Is the different trade offs you have of being independent um, and the risk and control that's associated with that versus uh, finding a partner, and by partner I mean someone to acquire you, where you can help fulfill the mission of the company in, in a in a more productive way. And um, you know, I, I hate answering fundraising questions with respect, like, what's your exit? Cause you know, when I think about joining a company or when I think about fundraising, it's always, you're, you're about creating value, right? The goal is to, uh, to grow in an accretive way that makes the enterprise more valuable. Right. But if markets conditions are in a way where, you know, someone's offering you uh, you know, a, a multiple of valuation for the company, you have to seriously as a fiduciary, look at it. And two, there are times when, um, you know, industry forces and dynamics make the future a lot less attractive, right? Um, and finding a, a bigger partner is a uh, you know a better means to you know achieve the the company's mission. Um, and those are the times when you want to start thinking about an exit. But again, people are going to buy you based upon your future, so you need to be able to project a um, compelling future outcome. And then during the sale process, you need to be able to hit your milestones. So. To effectively like sell a company, you need to be you know I'd say at least six to nine, but really twelve months ahead of the process to give you a few months to prepare all your materials to to you know talk to uh, potential uh, acquiring partners, hopefully many of whom you've talked to before. To the extent you want to use an advisor or banker, you need to find that banker, and then you have the numbers. um, In place and the story and the model in place, and the process is going to take, you know, best case three months, but maybe six to nine months to actually run. All that needs to happen. And if you're not set up for that, you're not going to have a successful outcome. And, you know, the, the old adage of like good companies are bought and not sold really applies here. You want to be. Um, if you want to get the you know, the multiple that you got on your last fundraising valuation, and the the uh, you know your uh, investors and your your board and your team expects, those things have to be in place where the acquiring company is willing to pay a premium. Because most of the acquiring companies, they're trading off an EBITDA multiple, or they're trading off a bottom line multiple. And if they're a financial buyer, like they have to have a really good return, uh, you know, unless they're using leverage, that means growth. Like for them to make a return, so. If the person's going to pay a high value to buy you, like they need to make money on that transaction. So they need your enterprise to increase in value post-transaction. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of founders and certainly lot at first time founders don't really think about that when thinking about how to approach, you know, when to exit or when to be thinking about, um, you know, preparing for an exit.
0: And you mentioned something that's particularly key there, which is during this exit process, you still need to operate the business. You can't get tunnel vision on the exit or the fundraise for the next milestone, you're growing and operating uh, through that process. Very interesting and based on the level of depth, I can already tell that we're gonna have a great conversation. Um, But let's, let's contrast the experience of being a CFO of a high growth company to that of being a CFO at a retail or brand company like Bonobos, for example, um so how how does it actually compare the experience of being a CFO from say a a brand like Bonobos to a SaaS company like All Voices?
1: Sure. Yeah, and, and All Voices is is you know the current company um I work for we're a a feedback management platform selling, you know, HR software um to help um companies uh, learn about uh you know the how their employees are actually feeling and and the it's the best way to get really honest feedback uh by your employees. Um so that's It's a Series A company. Um, but to get to your question, like a retail company versus SaaS company. But it was, was you know, it was a high growth company, right? We were, um, you know, for a long period of time growing our revenues at 50 to 100% a year. Um, and we took money, uh, you know, from venture capitalists and from growth equity investors who were looking for a, you know, a, a multiple on that return, right? Um, you know, who weren't IRR investors uh, and appropriately so. So it was a high growth situation. But, you know, retail and um You know, and SaaS are very different, right? Um, The challenge with retail um, is, you know, is inventory mostly, (laughs) right? In that your, um, you know, your income statement is an inaccurate tool for cash forecasting because your income statement is based on when you sell stuff, but your cash forecasting is based on when you buy stuff, right? Um, And those are different um, and you need a whole new set of tools uh, to forecast cash, because you need to focus on the buying and not the selling, which is done, you know, with your accounting software and uh, you know during a typical close process. And that is a real challenge. And if you don't get that right, over the long term, you can structurally set the business up to fail. Over the short term, you can miss payroll <laughs> or have your suppliers tell you they're not shipping products right, uh, which is typically what happens first. Right? You can run out of cash. Um so that is like a real challenge on on the um on a a, a retail company um, where you have physical goods, you have inventory. For a SaAS company, you know the, the the challenges is a little bit different. The nice part about SaAS, right is you have a recurring high margin revenue stream. That's really valuable. That's why investors pay you know eight, ten or more times for that for that revenue stream. Um, so that's really nice. that's comforting. Every month, you know, you're getting a check, right? That's easy. Um, the challenge is, uh, you know, that I think a lot of companies got away from when capital was really cheap was ensuring that you are accretively growing revenue, right? So that the, um, you know, your go to market with respect to how much you're spending on sales and marketing delivered a return where you weren't consuming too much cash to grow. Right. And when capital is cheap and, you know, like the old Buffett adage, when the tide comes in, you see who's swimming naked, right. Um, you know, as, as money has become more dear, um, you know, you can't just grow at all costs. You actually need to have built a good accretive growth engine. Uh, and that's the challenge for SaaS, right? Which is less of a near-term liquidity. Like I can, I can pretty accurately forecast my, you know, cash balance for next month. Uh, like that's not hard. Whereas a retail company, it's much harder because if we have a big shipment, right? Uh, and, you know, you have to be really thoughtful about how you buy. Um, you know, I could be off by like a meaningful amount from a cash perspective.
0: And you said, you know, one thing that you mentioned is inventory, Uh, It seems like this is sort of the plight of retailers today, especially in the current macro context. So curious, Brian, you know, we've got COVID, we've got global supply chain problems, we've got rising interest rates, and all of a sudden inventory is piling up, right? Retailers have uh, too much of the wrong stuff. Um, What are some of the tools that you as CFO would use to help a, you know, a retailer get through these challenging times?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I'll give a couple answers. And it's based on the different timing of your outlook. Cause there are certain things you can change tomorrow. There are certain things you can change next quarter. And then there are certain things you can change next year. Um, things you can change tomorrow is, you know, putting in a good, um, control around buying stuff effectively. And this will vary industry to industry. As you mentioned, I worked at Bonobos, that's the apparel industry. You know, we had an open to buy process um, because we were a merchant driven organization. So, uh, you know, there there had to be effectively like approval to buy stuff. And that was based on certain inventory sell downs. Um, so that's like near term, just being really cognizant of the cash that's going out the door being like, oh, nuts, you know, we just put a buy order for hundred thousand dollars because it was replenishing something I didn't realize that was going out. I all of a sudden have you know payable that I'm going to have to fulfill. You know, like it's preventing that. That's sort of near term. Um, medium term is uh, better reporting. So you know, putting in place metrics around uh, you know like gross profit return on investment, um, so that the inventory costs get taken into account to the people whose jobs it is to buy and sell. Right now, this will vary again by industry. In industry. I think a lot of uh, a lot of error that um, occurs in uh, and has occurred over the last sort of you know ten plus years in high growth retail startups is that uh, there isn't that sort of discipline put in place early on. Like the really good companies um, who have done successfully well and who are you know big companies now they have that and that's like second nature like they understand how costly inventory is and they account for inventory with respect to you know the the merchants or or um you know the the planning team whoever sort of is primarily responsible running inventory varies industry to industry um and, and they get graded on that and that's how their bonuses get a prize and that's how you know people get uh, uh promoted and whatnot um early startups don't do that uh, often Uh, The other challenge for early startups over the medium term is, um, again, this gets back to like financial tools being sometimes misleading. A P&L is based upon when you sell stuff, not when you buy stuff. This creates what I call exhaust, (laughs) right, Um, within a retail industry where there is stuff that you buy that you don't sell or you don't sell at full price or you don't sell in a timely manner. And um, again, mature companies have means to deal and account for this. And plan for this in a way that takes that into account. Growth companies, when you're in growth mode, don't even think about that, right? They're like, oh, you know, whether it's, again, if it's a fashion business where it's a seasonal buy, you sort of forget the last month's buy. If it's, uh, you know, um, uh, something where you have spoilage, you like, you know, you don't even think about that. You just think about the stuff you sold. Um, so that's sort of a, a medium term, fixing the the reporting. And then long term, um, it's thinking about different um being in different businesses and fulfilling in a way that requires less working capital, uh, and, and that often means less inventory. Um, you know, so whether that's drop shipping or whether that's co-listing or you know entering into other means by which you can still leverage the company's assets, still create value by delivering. You know, a, a a a a great experience for your customers. You know, selling a nickel for a dime, buying you know for a nickel, selling for a dime. Um, but doing so in a way that is less dependent on um, you know on working capital. And um, you know, that's a longer term one because you can't really change that overnight. But it's one that, as we are entering a higher rate environment, I think a lot more uh, you know CFOs and companies are going to look at right? Because ultimately the cost of carrying capital is based on the cost of capital, right? Uh, um, and with the cost of capital going up, um, the cost of, um, uh, of uh, you know, uh, higher capital uh, um, usage areas of the business uh, has increased.
0: So many gems there. Um, what, is the, what is the role of scenario planning, right? You have oversight, reporting and metrics, and then, upstream from those practices that you mentioned, you have discipline right so just rigor around it. talk to me a little bit about scenario planning. How often should we be doing scenario planning and around what
1: yeah it's a great question so i'll say and I do a lot of advising for um, and I do it currently and over the years I've done a lot of advising for um, you know for uh, you know for finance departments for CEOs um, I also you know you read my, my bio there was a four year period where I was the uh, ran growth uh, I was the growth partner for a growth equity fund so I was spending time with 15 20 different companies in this type of role um, you know helping them with their capital deployment plans that kind of stuff the two biggest tactical mistakes I see um, you know CFOs or companies make is one keeping your financial plan only within like a calendar year and then two having only you know one plan with no scenario plan so people put so much time into your annual budget right? you know, and like your annual budget lasts within your fiscal year for most people, it's calendar year, but some people it's not. And, you know, then they'll like maybe spend 5% of their time or, or less doing, you know, out year projections. And then another 5% or less doing, you know, some scenario planning. And it's just crazy to me because now like we're in October, right? Um, you know, you will get people where I'm like, Hey, what's the next quarter look like? They're like, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. We're doing our financial plan, you know, in, in a couple of weeks. It's like, well, But it's next quarter. It's like ninety days away. Like you don't you you have put no thought into what hires you're going to need. You know what uh, you know what's going to happen. Like like no no because this is twenty you know twenty twenty two. That's twenty twenty three. Right. Like you should always be forecasting eight quarters ahead. And then the other thing is like models are uncertain. Right. I can make a model say anything. You know anyone who's uh, spent time as an investment banker as a management consultant has built a model knows that every model has errors in it and every model can be made to sort of say whatever you want. So like what use is it? The use is scenario planning right the use is to see hey if this moves up and this moves down what does that mean if this contract that i think is going to hit doesn't hit what does that actually mean if these if this supplier cuts me off if you know this um you know if my cpa in my course of uh, a new customer acquisition all of a sudden you know gets thrown offline like what does that actually mean for my ability to grow for the capital required to grow um and there's just not nearly enough of that uh, not because you're going to have like an answer that you're going to present to the board in terms of like here's our you know scenario plan, but just being nimble with your thinking and being able to be proactive um, and being able to really you know uh, address potential risks and potential pitfalls.
0: One of the challenges that retailers struggle with when they think about uh, planning or financial modeling is how frequently they should forecast uh, you know their inventory buys. And I mean, this depends on the supply model, whether you're buying inventory or doing dropship. Um, you have Costco, who is you know kind of the preeminent example that I can think of, where they actually turn inventory, I believe, like 12.1 times per year, which is among the fastest or the, or the most frequent of any of the most valuable retailers in the world. Um, curious how you thought about forecasting inventory buys, you know, at Bonobos or Thrive. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, so buys is a little bit different than turns, right? Um, You know, your inventory turns and the inventory turns you should model to are going to be based on your business model, right? Um, You know, for a retail company. So let's take uh, Bonobos for a sec. We're a clothing company and we're a seasonal clothing company, right? So we had four buys, you know, we had, uh, you know, spring, summer, uh, uh, fall and holiday, um, but we weren't that seasonal because we were buying menswear and we were selling to guys who are not oftentimes so fashion forward. So a lot of what we sold was like 52-week products, khaki pants, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so that those turn, like the structure of the inventory turns with respect to like what is possible is gonna just vary based upon the the industry you're in. Like Bonobos, we can never turn 12 times because we're making four buys, right? It's just like it's impossible. The math just doesn't work out. Um you know, that being said, you know, for Bonobos, which is a higher margin product, we could afford to have fewer turns, right? Because again, it, like the, the margin, the dollars you make on a, a product versus the capital cost, the turns, the amount you hold that product, that, that should be an inverse correlation, right? Um, you know, Tiffany has inventory turns of like two times a year, but that's okay because they have very high margins. Um, so it really depends on you know, your business that you're in for what is possible. And then there's just good execution, Right, so there's what's possible—a range of outcomes based upon you know whether you're selling groceries. You know, at thrive. We had a much higher turn because we only were selling you know a similar set of SKUs, and the replenishment in those times was much higher, and our margin was much lower. So you know, we had to. Um, but you know, we had a good year. We were turning at six times. We had a bad year, we returning at five. There are tactical things you can do, um, you know, to to increase your inventory turns. Uh, but when it comes to buying, it, it you know it depends, and you know it really there's trade offs between. Margin and inventory, right? There were certain products, you know, for Thrive Market, for example, um, you know, you make money. I used to tell the, the, the you know, the, the merchant teams, like, we make money on the buy or the sell. Sometimes you make money on the buy, right? So there were certain products, and not to get into too many details, but like, you know, tuna, canned tuna, right? There are like certain times a year where there are catches where lots of canned tuna come in and where the people who can those tuna want to unload large quantities of it. So if you set yourself up to buy tuna once a week with a replenishment, you will be paying a much higher price and we'll have times when you're stocked out. So that's one option. The other option is like, hey, we're going to buy six months of tuna and store it because the spoilage down is very low. It's canned, right? It lasts for you know years. Um, and we're going to buy it at a cheap enough cost that we can absorb that inventory cost and that capital cost with uh, the margin that we make on that product. And, you know, for your entire inventory, you have to, you can't do, you can't have all tunas, right? Because if you have all tunas, you're going to turn too slowly and you're going to, you know, uh, bankrupt the business. But you can't have all, you know, high turners, you know, replenish in real time either because, you know, you you can't stock out, right? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a a, a business that, uh, you know, diapers.com, which is, um, you know, business is Mark Laurie, the guy, you know, he's now owns the Timberwolves, but he you know, he started diapers.com and then he, uh, it's called Quincy's name of the company. And then he he started uh, Jet, which got bought by Walmart. Quincy got bought by Amazon. This is back in 2007. Um, you know, he was selling to new moms and he, they were selling, you know, diapers and, and stuff for babies, right? Diapers.com. And his strategic thing was like, one, we're going to deliver next day, so he put a warehouse right outside of Manhattan or in close proximity, in a way that people at that time were like, "That's crazy! It's too expensive. You have to pay state have sales tax." Amazon wasn't doing that, uh, and then two, he's like, we there are certain skews where we will not be out of stock." So you know, diapers, um, you know, like wipes, uh, you know, like certain baby formula, they, we will not be out of stock, and you know, for all the new parents, you know, you run out of diapers. At, you know, six o'clock at night, you place an order and it comes six a.m. the next morning. You know, you have a customer for life, and, and this is you know again now it's a little bit commonplace, and there are all sorts of apps where you could you know get yeah GoPuff and whatever where you can get it delivered in you know thirty minutes. Um, but this is like fifteen years ago. That was the that was using inventory for strategic means. Right, we're like he's, you know, and there was I don't know how many skus they were, but like we will not go out of stock at that, and that was a, you know, wasn't the, from a CFO standpoint, you know, you weren't optimizing your, you know, re, your gross margin return on investment from your inventory by, you know, oversupplying and you know running at fifty weeks of inventory for certain skus, but it was part of the strategic value proposition. It was part of like your ability to extend customer lifetime value.
0: It seems like you have you have to know your business. Uh, and the context of it and there's no one-size-fits-all advice when it comes to inventory here but i'm curious if high inventory levels can mask you know true business performance is that is that possible
1: oh yeah for sure this gets back to my point about exhaust right you know your p l is when you sell stuff not when you buy stuff right if you buy the wrong stuff um and you have you know unlimited capital no capital is really unlimited but let's say you have a lot of cash which this mimicked, the, you know, a lot of companies over the last 10 years, you can show what looks like great performance because you're only showing the stuff you sell. And if you ignore your balance sheet and, you know, a lot of, I think, investors got tripped up because they, they, they weren't balance sheet investors. You know, you're investing in technology you're investing in a SaaS company, you know, you're looking at technology and maybe you're looking at like revenue. Maybe you're looking at like an income statement. You're definitely not getting the balance sheet because balance sheet doesn't mean anything for those companies. If you don't look at the balance sheet for, for a retail company, absolutely. You can, you know, buy everything and then only sell a little bit and be like, look how great we are. The stuff we sold, you know, we made all this money on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, I think about that in our own fundraising processes and how the income statement um, or I'm sorry the balance sheet just really didn't tell much story at all uh, right it's It's so much more about um, net dollar retention uh, average contract value, customer lifetime value, and those and customer acquisition cost, uh, whereas in a retail environment it's a totally different game, but as a retail CFO, you know we talked a little bit about. Uh, pricing in gross margin, but how would you approach that as a retail CFO? Um, we can throw a third one in there, which is cash flow.
1: Yeah, okay, this is a this is a complicated one, um, and and to your point, it starts you know with knowing your business, right? And, you know, as you mentioned, I've been the sort of CFO for two different retail companies, very different businesses. You know, fashion, high margin. Uh, you know, grocery, low margin, <laughs> higher turns, um, and. and, and um, so you, there's no like blanket answer. The blanket answer is like it varies upon uh, upon your business. But, um, you know, let's start with, uh, let's say, let's just start with the retailer because most people sort of understand fashion retailer like clothing, right? Apparel. Um, you know, for apparel, the way I always thought about pricing, um, you know, was partially top down and partially bottoms up, right? So top down, we had, we needed to get a general um, you know, margin structure across our entire apparel line, right. Um, to generate enough gross profits to, uh, you know, to, to, to absorb our costs and like fund the business, right. Um, like that was uh, a requirement. So we have this gross profit bogey. Um, but how do you get to that? And what is the margin, um, you know, required to be able to get to that. And that, you know, really varies, um, uh, based upon, uh, effectively how much economic value you're providing to your customer. Right so if you think about again apparel is a good one for this because um you know clothes oftentimes aren't that different save for the label and the brand um you know this your strength in a particular category you know dictated your pricing power right and the like the strength of your brand effectively dictated how much over you know a comparable product you could charge because customers you know, we're, we're willing to pay that incremental amount because the strength of your brand. Um, and even within a company or a brand, it varies dramatically by category to category. Um, and then even within a category, it varies by skew. You make a good buy, you make a bad buy, right? And this is the challenge with apparel. You pick the right colors, you can charge a premium for them and they're going to sell out. You pick the wrong colors and you know, you're going to discount it and you may still have a hard time selling through it. Um, so, um, you know, the short answer, I guess, is, is you know, you need to build it in a bottoms up way. Um, and the same thing, by the way, was, you know, within within grocery, um, you know, there are certain categories of which, you know, we had private label, for example, in private label, we obviously could charge a premium, um, whereas other categories, you know, could have been loss leaders as a means to, you know, get people, um, you know, to try out the service. Um, and so you build up your overall like company margin structure, you know, bottoms up piece by piece, but it needs to hit an overall top-down structure that makes sense within the confines of your company and, you know, how big the company is and how much uh, uh, overhead you have that needs to be supported by, you know, the gross profit. And really, again, the gross profit return on investment, because I encourage you to think about your inventory cost um, that is, uh, that is generated from that buy.
0: Talk about the role of supplier relationships as it pertains to some of these metrics, thinking about, um, you know, you mentioned uh, pricing, but even like cash flow is—is is there a connection between supplier relationship and something like cash flow?
1: Yeah, I mean, your suppliers are your your, your lenders, <laughs> typically, right? Like when when retail companies have problems, it's because their suppliers cut them off, right? Like JC Penney you know, had to file, like why? Because his, pli- his suppliers were like, hey, we're not advancing you money anymore, anyway, right? Those are your lenders, your your suppliers, and obviously, again, this various industry by industry. But typically there's someone who is, you know, making the product for you, who you are buying from, whether it's either a finished product or it's, you know, raw materials. Uh, And if your suppliers cut you off, um, you know, you're dead. That's typically, you know, you can like payrolls every two weeks. Like you you typically don't miss payroll. You typically get, you know, suppliers cut you off and you don't have anything to sell. Um, So making sure you maintain healthy supplier relationships is, is, is paramount. And if suppliers don't think you're a viable entity, um, you're probably not <laughs> right perception can become reality very very quickly um so you know how this relates to cash flow um you know you just need to make sure and this varies you know dramatically based upon you know whether you are a large public company with let's say public debt um you know or a startup where it's completely private um, but either way you need to make sure that um you know you uh, uh re- you are recognized that your first financer probably before your bank even is, you know, the people who are extending you credit um, and, uh, you know, ensuring that they have trust and faith in you is a very, very important responsibility. Um, and, 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 you know, ultimately, it's not the CFO's primary job typically, but if that goes wrong, you know, it, it's something that will, um, you know, cause tremendous, tremendous damage.
0: We have this uh, saying within Convictional, which is that, you know, Amazon cares about the consumer experience, the customer experience, right? They're customer centric. Shopify cares about the merchant experience. They are merchant centric. Convictional cares about the supplier experience. We are supplier centric. And our you know, second saying is that the supplier in retail is the first customer. Without them, retailers have nothing. And I think that dovetails very well into what you just said about the supplier is the primary lender. In a retail business, fascinating parallels there that I don't think uh, is totally aligned with how retailers run their run and operate their companies. Um, I want to take maybe a second to dive into a specific example of how this might play out uh, with uh, uh, Bonobos. Um, one of their innovations was guide shops, and for people who may not know, uh, guide shops was this really interesting concept where customers could try a product make the purchase and walk out without taking the product with them, right? So effectively getting uh, the retailer, getting cash up front, uh, customer doesn't actually leave with the product, but they've made the order. Talk about the financial decision-making around that type of retail model. And why do you think that more retailers haven't experimented with it, given how attractive it could be from a finance perspective?
1: Yeah, great question. So, Okay. Um, funny story about Guy Chaps, um, is that they were totally developed by accident. <laughs> um, you know, back in, uh, like 2010, 2011, first three years of its existence, Bonobos was pants only. So we were only making pants. That's what we're known for. Um, you know, in 2010, we did a big study and our customers cared about fit and, and um, you know, style. So they were, you know, they trusted us for other categories. So we went into shirts as our first foray, dress shirts. Um, uh, we actually did bathing suits first, but, that doesn't matter. Um, anyway, the the, the <laughs> at that point in time we hadn't really raised the institutional round yet, so it was short on funds. We didn't really have a, a, a proper like uh, design team um, and technical design. Technical design are the people in an apparel company who make the clothing fit you properly. Um, very important position. We didn't have like we didn't have those, so instead we had like an MBA who was doing it. Um, needless to say, the shirts did not fit very well. And our return rate, which typically on that category should be like twenty-five to thirty percent, was well over fifty percent. So more than like almost double or more, actually, uh, of um, you know the return rate. And we were based in New York, and we're still small, and we're selling to you know our friends and our friends' friends. So a lot of our customers were still in New York, and they call us and be like, "These shirts, you know, these shirts don't fit. Like, what do you want me to do?" And we, we were so sort of embarrassed. And, you know, one of the tenants, of the company was customer centric, we were like, come in, we'll fix it. So we hired like a tailor who, uh, you know, would come in and just fix the shirts. What we found is that people came in. They like they liked meeting us. And it was like, hey, this place is you guys are cool. Can I try on the pants? We we're like, no, no, no. We're an Internet company. We don't sell online. And it's like, well, maybe we should actually have the pants here. It's like, oh, OK, so we'll have the pants. Uh, and then they were like, oh, maybe we should have, you know, someone who actually knows like a lot about apparel and is like a friendly, friendly person who answering the door and interacting with the customers versus, you know, an engineer or like, you know, me or like <laughs> someone who happened to like be by the door. Um, and so we sort of like invented this, not invented, but it, we, we like let backed into this uh, this retail concept um, and, you know, iterated it. And, you know, as a startup, we had like a, a mentality about you know, fast um, iteration cycles and we were quickly to, quick to change things. Um, so it evolved from there. Um, in terms of what, well, let me just say why we did it, first of all, and then I can talk about sort of the broader industry. We did it um, because it fit with our model and fit with our customers' needs and wants, right? A lot of our customers were, you know, guys who wanted to look good, but weren't really into clothes. We had plenty of customers who loved clothes and would like, you know, be buying from us multiple times a year, but a lot were, you know, wanted to look good professional, you know, men, um, who, you know, weren't really into clothing shopping, didn't love going, like didn't love the traditional clothing shopping experience. So, you know, around now it's October sweater, you know, it gets cold. It's like, Oh, I need to buy some sweaters and some pants, you know, in April, May, it's like, Oh, it's getting warm. I gotta, you know, I need to buy some t-shirts and some, some shorts. Um, you know, guys would buy twice a year. Right. Um, and if you're buying twice a year and you're going to make a larger buy, uh, and you don't need the stuff the next day, right? You're not buying because you're, you know, have a, a date that night that you want to look good for, or, or you're not, you know, uh, uh, a tourist who's out of town or, or you know, who, who's wanting to take stuff home with them, or you're not shopping with your friend in a social way. Like that's not how our customer was buying. So for us, the experience as we kept evolving and kept iterating was meant to fit our customers' needs and our customers' wants and, and the way he wanted to buy, um, the other reason why it worked for us was our um, our brand promise was around fit and around um, you know uh, 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 like you know personalization for you. So that means we had to carry more SKUs, more sizes. We carried half size, like that kind of stuff, and more colors than the average retailer. Um, and we couldn't fit all that inventory in a, a store. So either we had two options: either we build mega stores where we have massive amounts of inventory and maybe we could have a chance of fitting. Or we build smaller stores, leverage our technology, and be able to um, satisfy that customer's needs in a way that uh, you know made sense. Um, so for us, like obviously the latter one, you know, w- w- was the way we went because it just sort of fit in with where we were at the business and the customer we we're trying to satisfy. Um, so it gets back to your question of why retailers don't do it. Well, some do, right? You know, if you're if you're going to buy a car. You, know, you oftentimes don't drive out of the car that day, right? Um, similar with like an appliance, um, you know, or, or something where a fixed asset where you're buying over a longer period of time, um, you know, or if it's in the apparel space, you're buying a, a you know, a tuxedo or you're buying like, a, you know, formal wear, you're very happy to, you know, have it uh, uh, be something you, you know, go in, buy a few suits, they come a few weeks later, wonderful, right? Um, so, so some retailers do sell this way. Um, But for others, you know, it doesn't make sense, right? For others, um, you know, if you're going back to the grocery, the other industry I've I've worked prominently in, most of the time you go to the grocery store, you're cooking that night, right? You eat every day. Um, You you go to the grocery store because you need something. Um, Not having that in stock and telling, hey, we'll send it to you a day or two is like not a satisfactory answer. Um, And then the last thing comes down to cost, right? Um, So, you know, the inventory cost is potentially better if you pool inventory. You don't have to split inventories at the store. Um, but there's a last mile cost, right? Like, like getting a box to you from the depot at the last mile, having a driver, you know, we all have probably drivers who come multiple times a week that costs money, right? Uh, that is expensive. Um, and that adds to the cost of the item, um, a more efficient means, right. Is call a grocery store where a lot of stuff gets shipped to one depot and you have, you know, a person go to a depot and buying multiple things, um, so you need to overcome that cost. So even in the apparel space, let's say you're know you're you're Uniqlo or, or a brand that um, sells a lot of like white t-shirts, right? If you're selling a lot of white t-shirts, um, you know just shipping to the store, right? There's only five sizes. Maybe there's three cuts. So You got 50 skus um, of which, like you know, most people are going to buy six to eight of those skus. Um, just have this the 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 white shirts in the store ship all the shirts to the store and have people come and buy those white shirts with three other items and that is a much more you know efficient uh model with respect to you know unit economics and the cost to actually deliver those garments to that person's house
0: it all begins with a deep understanding around your customer and hypothesizing what they might want and testing and learning um i think In so many organizations, this is not specific to retail by the way, but in a lot of organizations, they are very pedantic around thinking about how things might impact their brand or whether their customers will actually want something. And they have decisions that are made by committee. And so eventually they just say, ah, we'll just keep doing the same thing that everyone else is doing that we've always been doing. It's up to the leaders of the company to set a culture that. You know reflects these types of ideals that allow us to innovate and iterate faster i think that's a segue to culture right so cfo you're in a very interesting position because you get to interact with all of the company leaders in addition to reporting to the ceo how do cfos participate in setting the company culture uh, and is it different than how your ceo or coo might set tone and culture
1: um Yeah, I I do think it's different. Um, And this gets into the partnership between the CEO and the CFO, to be perfectly honest. And it's a, you know, it is a very, very important partnership, you know, call it all companies or most companies, Um, you know, and and they have different roles, right? Those two individuals. Um, There's an overlap where they, you know, are aligned, but a good CFO gives the CEO um, uh, uh, ability to do certain things. And a good CEO allows the CFO a, the ability to do other things, right? So that tandem really needs to to work uh, in in process. And, you know, from a CFO standpoint, right? We started out this conversation where you're like, hey, so like what does CFO do? Um, You know, and one of the things I said was capital allocation. And capital allocation is like budgeting, i.e. where you spend your money. And to me, there's no bigger indication of a company's values of where you spend your money, right? who gets promoted, who, uh, you know, gets uh, 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 raises, who has um, the ability to hire teams to, uh, you know, go after uh, certain company initiatives, right? Those are typically things the CFO under, you know, his or her control, right? Because the CFO is the capital allocator, but there's no bigger culture setter than that, right? Um, So that's really, to me, like how you can, um, how the CFO really impacts culture. You know, there are other, like, I would say microwaves right. And whether, Hey, we care about, you know, being frugal and therefore, you know, we're going to make sure, um, you know, employees are thoughtful about, you know, how they spend money or whether, you know, we are going to be like, you know, really customer focused. So, you know, we're going to make sure that um, you know, all customer communications have the right tone. Like there's certain things that a CFO can do as well. Uh, but those are much smaller, right. The bigger one to me starts with, with capital allocation and that, Again, you have to be aligned with your partner, you know, the CEO.
0: It seems like CFOs underwrite the behaviors that culture ultimately enables, right? And so, uh, I think that's an interesting way to put it that the the culture is enabled by the principles set on what the company has determined. Uh, is important and what's important is what they spend money on. Um, and if you're spending money on stuff that's not important, maybe you want to think about <laughs> think about that a little bit more critically. Um, the other day we were chatting about Convictional and you said something that struck me, which is that retailers need to buy what they acquire. Can you unpack that statement for me?
1: Yeah, um, this is sort of an interesting one um, that I, I learned from a company that, um, you know, Uh, uh, effectively on the board of um, that that did an amazing job at this. Um, But, you know, traditional retailers, you know, are merchants, right? Uh, You know, they buy something and sell something, right? You know, buy for a nickel, sell for a dime, right? It's sort of an easy business. Um, And, uh, you know, with e-commerce, that really, really got turned on its head um, because, you know, when there is ubiquity to be able to, you know, go from one store to the next and, you know, um, like uh, almost infinite choice, the challenge has been going through the um, aggregators, you know, your uh, meta properties and uh, uh, Google and Amazon, um, who are the three primary ones at scale, like they are the determinants of um, what the customer sees, (laughs) right? Um, And Guess what? They like have a very high value. Like look at, even at these you know, depressed prices, their market caps are, are good because they're good at extracting value there. They're really, really good at it. Um, and uh, as a result, the scarcity is not the thing that is bought, but the scarcity is the customer's eyeballs and the customer's attention. And if you are able to buy some, like to a acquire customers' um, buying intent, um, that is valuable. Now you have to be able to deliver that product in a way where you you know still make money, right? At a cost that's less than that value, um, but that like concept of uh, customer intent uh, that you've acquired is, uh, is not, um, I think, really internalized by a lot of companies. Let me, let me talk a little bit more detail. Um, you know, I think it was like John Wanamaker, right? One of the early like uh, department store guys he you know, had this famous saying that you've probably heard is like half my ad budget is wasted i don't just don't know which half right um i would say that today you know we have like very targeted you know marketing even with the apple rules that have uh, you know made it a little bit harder one to one you still have a pretty good idea of oh i served that person an ad you know she bought something for me like okay that the that was an effective ad um And retailers absolutely think like that. What they don't think about is, what about all the people who came to me wanting to buy something that I don't sell, right? Or wanting to buy something that, um, you know, uh, is like a little bit different from like my core value proposition. That is a massive, massive, massive opportunity. And um, I just don't think companies are set up to, especially companies who are merchant driven, we buy and then we sell, are driven to think like that, right? Um, And and the beauty is for so many customers, especially for growth companies, your uh, uh, marketing expense is, you know, one of your biggest expenses, right? You know, you you live and die by your CPA, your cost per acquisition, your CAC, your customer acquisition cost. Um, One of the best ways to lower that is take all the demand for stuff that you don't currently sell and find a way to monetize it, right? Whether it's a lead that you pass on to someone else and you sell a lead or whether you decide to drop ship someone else's product because you're never going to sell that product but you are able to acquire that demand with the demand for your product that you actually want you don't really need to make money off of those um, uh, off of those leads because it's a deadweight loss right it's a sunk cost you've already paid that money to you know to Facebook to get the eyeballs like you can't get it back right so even if you paid on average you know hundred dollars to get that eye- those eyeballs to you, um, you can still sell something at 50 and make money because it's the other, you know, eyeballs of the people buying the stuff you actually make and your actual customers of where you drive value. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen a few companies do this really, really, really well where they've created businesses um, and they're not like the core business, but it's like a fine like little thing to satisfy demand that they get. That's like a natural byproduct of a demand that they get. That's actually good demand. Um And I think more retailers need to think like that. And I I just don't think they're set up to do it.
0: That is an epic point, right? So how do retailers, brands, companies monetize the stuff, the demand that the excess demand that consumers have or customers have that they do not have supply to fulfill today? And if you are able to do that, it completely changes how you operate your business and its growth trajectory. Um, That is a wonderful way to frame it. And tactically speaking, how we've seen retailers do this is very simple, right? They just basically take um, search queries that their customers have placed on their site. And they basically just take that as a CSV or a spreadsheet. And they're like okay, let's go find suppliers who can fulfill these products because customers want them and they're searching for it. Very simple way to get visibility into that excess demand and then plug in product opportunities that can meet that demand and ultimately drive more margin dollars into the business.
1: hundred percent. Your search bar is where you start. If you have one of those businesses, like start at your search bar, because that is what customers are looking for. That is the highest consumer intent. If you are not fulfilling that demand, you're, you know, missing an opportunity. And it it may be a product you never sell because you can't fulfill it profitably or because it's outside of your customer value proposition. But if you can't find a way to monetize that demand, like that's gold, right? A customer saying, I want to buy this product, right? Like what more do you want as a retailer?
0: (laughs) Exactly. They're banging down your door to buy it. You just don't have it. Um, That is a wonderful wrap up to uh, the interview. I would love to move to a rapid fire round. I've got four quick questions. Uh, Just give me the top thing that comes to mind. I'm going to give you the question and just give me your answer in about 30 seconds or less. How does that sound?
1: Good. I uh, judging by this interview I've been bad at keeping answers to 30 seconds but I'll do my best here.
0: <laughs> All right, I'll let, I'll let, I'll let you go if uh, if you if you run on no problem. No, no, don't uh, cut me off. <laughs> what is let's start with number 1. What is the most exciting opportunity in retail and e-commerce today?
1: Um let's see. I I think the most exciting opportunity is still on um ways to create customer demand. Um You know, if you can find a way to do that, I know, you know, some of like the Chinese companies have done group shopping and like, um, you know, if, if there is a way in which you can like create demand, um, there is still massive, massive value in that. I just don't think, um, because of the dominance of the platforms who may be starting to erode that there have been enough shots on goal on that one.
0: Love it. What is a brand you love and why?
1: Um, I love Patagonia, um, probably like a lot of people do, uh, you know, it's just a, it fulfills its promise really well. And it's something that, um, you know, I, I've never regretted buying a Patagonia product and I've never been let down by the customer experience uh, when something happens to that product.
0: What has been your most important lesson as a parent?
1: As a parent, you have to let them fail, um. I have three kids, you know, they're nine, six, and four. And I think the hardest thing is you see your kids struggle and you just want to help, right? Um, I think that's like, you know, any doting parents initial uh, uh, response. And um, that's the wrong reaction in most cases. In my experience, you just got to let them fail. You got to let them do it. You got to let them fail.
0: Like uh, a retail CFO, there's no playbook for being a parent.
1: (laughs) That is true. I learned that after my third kid, I was like, okay, someone would give me the manual at this point. And like, Nope, no manual. It's frustrating.
0: We'll, we'll, we'll end with our uh, final question here, which is, you know, the kindest thing someone has done for you uh, or uh, co- kindness in recent memory, uh, whatever comes to mind first.
1: That's a really hard question. Um, the thing that comes to mind is totally um, like such a small little nothing act of kindness that I feel, um, Uh, I feel bad answers. So I'm going to actually think of something a little bit deeper. Honestly, um, receiving feedback to me is, um, and I was given some really good feedback um, the other day, Uh, you know, feedback's a gift. Um, It's something that, um, you know, I really, as I've gotten sort of older and more senior, like in, you know, professionally, you get less and less feedback and you appreciate it more. Um, And I was given a really, uh, a really useful piece of feedback uh, the other day. And I am incredibly appreciative of that.
0: The best feedback is always the most cutting to the stuff that just is the most painful to hear. So it's incredibly kind when people have the courage to deliver that, especially someone in your position. Brian, uh, you truly are a legend of retail, but a true legend of business strategy, of finance, of operations. And so it's been an absolute joy to get to know you over the past few weeks and to have this conversation. I'm so grateful for it and for uh, Zig Capital for making the introduction. Um, so thank you so much, Brian. This has been an abso- absolute pleasure.
1: Chris, the pleasure is all mine. Really uh, great to meet you. I love uh, you know, what you guys are doing at Conviction Hill. Uh, appreciate your time. Wish you all the best.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it thanks again to Brian for coming on the show and thank you for listening. To catch the latest episodes of Legends of Retail, please subscribe now to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you want to share feedback with me on the show, DM me on Twitter at Chris Grouchy, or you can shoot me an email. I'm chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening.